Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkar, and except today I'm not your host. Uh, this is a flip interview, and so I've roped in some other unsuspecting, kind, generous host, uh, none other than um, Chris Austin from Dalhousie. Hello, Chris, and welcome to the program, or you should be welcoming me to the program. I'm not sure how this works. <laughs> Hi, Raj. It's great, great to be back uh, in uh, switched seats, as you, as you have remarked. Indeed, we we this isn't our first uh, dance, is it? We've uh, we did the Perdumna interview together. We, we did some publishing something or other together. We, we've been working together for a while, have we not? Yes, yeah, and I'm excited to talk about your your new book today. Okay, so I will. So flip interview. That means I interview you about my book, correct? No, that's not <laughs> no, you go for it. Do your thing. Um, sure. Okay. I yeah. I thanks thanks for inviting me to to uh, to, to chat about this. Um, there's a lot of things to to talk about. I I think my first question is a very generic one for the listeners who perhaps don't have as much background. Um, the first question is is what is a Purana and and what is a Mahatmya and and why are they important in Hinduism? Before just in a very general way before we get to the to the book. Well, the book is called um, The Goddess and the Sun in Indian Myth. And so for someone who's maybe looking broadly at uh, comparative literature or what we call mythology or world mythology, that may make sense. But then as you zoom into what you and I do, the word myth may or may not make sense for what I'm really looking at, which technically is the genre of Purana, a genre that is um, nebulous, it's sketchy, it's, 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 it's colorful, it is... It is um, legendary uh, mythological narratives um, of days gone by, times of old. Purana literally means uh, ancient or old, and so uh, tales of ascetics and kings and magical things and so forth. Tales that are uh, deeply intertwined with uh, Hindu uh, philosophy and theology, but unlike the Vedas that are um, um, very rigid in their transmission, the Puranas are more fluid in that there may be um, a, a number of manuscripts of a certain Purana, uh, which um, uh, which which have a different structure, uh, slightly different content. Yeah, so I'm not sure if that broadly answers the question of what a Purana is, uh, but more specifically, a Mahatmya. Uh, literally, it's sort of like a greatness or glorification. It's it's a subsection in the Purana genre that glorifies often a place of worship, a tirtha, uh, but um, uh, quite famously a glorification of the goddess, the Devi Mahatmya, and glorification of the sun god, Surya, in this Surya Mahatmya, uh, about which, I, I, about which uh, I discuss in this book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yes, the, the, what we're, we're chatting about today is, is your new book, the, the Goddess and the King, 
in, uh, sorry, that's the, the prior book that you published, The Goddess and the King in Indian Myth, Ring Composition, Royal Power, and the Dharmic, uh, Dharmic Double Helix. So that came out a year ago. And now uh, this year we have The Goddess and the Sun in Indian Myth, Power, Preservation, and Mirrored Mahatmyas in the Markandeya Purana. So, I mean, often I know you would ask, you know, someone, what, how did this project come about? Clearly, these two books are very closely tied. They both fundamentally treat the, the Markandeya Purana. Um, so uh, my question is, you know, um, you, you chose to, to, to pursue this material in two venues, in two separate book titles. Um, I'm curious about that, first of all. So I, I'm, I'm going to assume that I know, perhaps you can correct me, I assume I know why you've published the second one. It, it, it seems to arise from the first one. But you opted for two titles, and I'm curious about um, how that took shape. Why, why two books and not one uh, larger work on the Markandeya Purana more, more generally? Oh, that's a good question. Um, had the two been combined, and I think initially I was envisioning a much larger work, uh, it would have been, indeed it was, too unwieldy to maintain a single line of thought or focus, and certainly um, would not easily fit into the requirements of a, a, a publisher's manuscript uh, um, uh, guidelines. Um, so, um, you know, long story short, in I'd say 2014, I became an ascetic with a desktop, essentially. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I redefined for myself um, what discipline was. And I, I wrote and I wrote and I wrote because it was the only thing remaining. I had, you know, I'd, I'd worked in the private sector back and forth. I'd done a couple of degrees. I'd done my, my candidacy exams. And it, for me, it was just this, the dragon to slay was the thesis. And for somebody who is congenitally extroverted, sitting alone with text without conversation is, is you know, really it's hell realm. Uh, it's difficult for anybody, but I think particularly somebody who, who thrives on um, live human interaction. And so, but I had to do it. So I, you know, I went underground. I, I sort of suspended all of my social relations for a good four to six months. And I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. Um, and, you know, <laughs> the tail end of that, um, by the time I had the, the sage counsel of my advisor on board, um, it, it was clear that there was far too much for one dissertation. And so a lot of the materials that congealed into this book were apocryphal from, from that, that mountain. You know, this is the last uh, bit that was uh, about half of this material was newly written since then, but the core of this material comes from that, that sort of time when I was dissertating essentially and the, the, the goddess and the king, you know, I'm, I was really interested in, in frame narratives and what's up with this frame narrative of the, of the king in exile, speaking to the ascetic, what does this have to do with the, the glories of the goddess? Why is this so important? And he was important somehow. And <clears throat> But I, I sort of pursued that line of thought. Okay, well, that's a good question. I kind of have an answer there. But then why is the Devi Mahatmya in the Markandeya Purana? It could have been anywhere. Mm -hmm. Or... You know, why, why specifically is it sandwiched in the middle of these sun myths? What's going on here? Why are they, what's the relationship? I knew, I didn't know what the significance was, but I knew that it was significant. And so um, the research question really uh, around which this book is based, uh, probably along the lines of, um, you know, why are the, the myths of the Devi Mahatmya sandwiched within the sun myths and the Markham Krona? I knew what's going on with these sun myths. 
Um, that's sort of an evolute of the initial research question around which the first book was based. So the two books, um, uh, it's an overstatement that they would be companions, but certainly one stands on the shoulders of the other, I'd say. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. And now, of course, I have to follow up with the uh, the most natural, but probably the most difficult question of all is, why are the Devi Mahatmya and Surya Mahatmya incorporated into the Markandeya Purana? I guess maybe at, at first you could just sort of clarify what, what we mean when we say the Devi Mahatmya and Surya Mahatmya are incorporated into the Markandeya Purana. But then maybe you could speak to the rationale, the driving thematic preoccupations that um, according to which it makes sense for the Surya Mahatmya and the Devi Mahatmya, uh, what are they? And but why do they, or how do they uh, um, occupy the environment of the Markandeya Purana in a in a way that makes sense? Yeah. So the Devi Mahatmya is uh, very much a standalone text that still has a vibrant um, uh, uh, ritual life to this day. It's it's chanted at the the nine nights goddess festival and the Navratri festival in the fall. Um, but the, if you ever hear it or, or, or peruse the, the, the liturgy, if you will, you know, you'll hear Markandeya Vacha, Markandeya said. Mm-hmm. And then it's Markandeya who is declaring all of the glories of the goddess. And the glories are tripartite where you see the goddess acting on the cosmic sphere at the time of creation, indeed, pralaya, dissolution that precedes creation ad infinitum. But in, 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 in this current uh, cycle of creation, you have the goddess appearing uh, to save the day. Um, in the second act, you have her uh, restoring the, the sovereignty of Indra and the gods who have been deposed by the demon Mahisha. And in the third uh, act of the goddess, she does the same, but this time it's the demons Shumba and Nishumba who usurp the throne of Indra. And then there's the frame narrative of the king who's hearing the story and the ascetic who's telling the story. And all of that, even the exchange between the king and the ascetic, they're all mouthed by Markandeya. Even in the, in, in the ritual to this day, mm-hmm. you know, there'll be a verse, you know, Savarni Yusuritanayo, uh, you know, yada yada swaha. But before that, they'll say Markandeya vacha swaha. The Markandeya's presence is part of the liturgy of the text. That's how inextricable they are. Mm-hmm. And yet scholars for about 150 years have noted that nowhere before the Devi Mahatmya and nowhere after the Devi Mahatmya do we see this um, colossally uh, new uh, vision of divinity where the divine is feminine, the supreme divine, beyond the pantheon of Indra and the gods, beyond the, 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 the Trimurti, beyond um, uh, creator, sustainer, and destroyer, Brahma, Vishnu, Mahesh. There is this primordial power that is the, that is the goddess herself, and nowhere do we really see that. It's obviously new. It's um, unabashedly sectarian, perhaps, and so I think scholars have rightly tended to treat it differently, or to look at it as a self-contained system. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that I try to do in my work is show that by the time of the final redactions irrespective of all the archaeological layers of, uh, of the city, there's a certain flow, there's a, a system to the current city, irrespective of, you know, how much of Rome is modern and how much is pre-modern and how much mm-hmm. is 
was built by the ancient Romans, you know, there's still a certain flow. There's a certain system, whether we want to compare that to a mail system or a sewage system or uh, an electrical circuitry. And it's clear to me that um, the interpolations, if we want to call them that, they're not intrusions. They're not haphazard. There's a method to the madness of what we find where within the world of, of Indian myth, of, of Purana. And mm-hmm. so um, I, I knew that there was, it, was, it was meaningfully placed there. And I was trying to understand why. There's this thing called the Stevi Mahatmya that's officially chapters 91 to 91. 81 to 93 of the Markani Purana, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so you, it can be expressed as a self-contained Mahatmya or it can be expressed as part of the larger patchwork quilt of the Markani Purana. Now, as soon as the Devi Mahatmya is finished, I believe there's maybe one chapter. Right before the Devi Mahatmya, we hear of um, the, the story of Surya and Surya's family. I believe chapter 77 and 78 of the Markani Purana. And then right after the Devi Mahatmya, we have this other um, tripartite saga of the glories of the sun. And much like the goddess, you have the sun serving a salvific function at creation. The sun um, saving heaven and restoring power to the gods. Mm-hmm. And this, this, this complex, this narrative complex, too, ends with a very intriguing narrative of, of earthly sovereignty. So, so it, it, this descent from the, the function at the cosmic level, at the heavenly level, at the terrestrial level, um, you have this glorious laudation of Surya that is similar to the laudation of, of the Devi that is really nowhere else uh, to be found in the Markani Purana. So... They're common in the fact that they're sort of out of the blue, if you will, but they're also common in that they have this parallel structure. Now, it's shocking to me that no one has really taken real notice of this parallel structure. And I think the reason why it hasn't been noted, I mean, pragmatically speaking, how many people study religion? Of those, how many study Hinduism? Of those, how many study Purana? (laughs) Of those, how many, you know, care to read the the Mark and Purana? Yes, no, it's a numbers game, to be sure. But there have been many a brilliant mind that that has looked at Mark and Purana, at least half a dozen that I could think of. And no one's noted this this glaring, I guess pun intended, since we're talking about the sun, but this glaring similarity between these um, laudations. So we can think of these laudations as separate Mahatmyas, and we can also think of them as part of the the, the Puranic fold, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I just kind of pursue one point in there, which is you you make a good argument about the the structural sort of similarity of the two and how they both both the Devi Mahatmya and the Markandeya Mahatmya follow a kind of a fairly common Puranic motif of you know there's a problem in the cosmos the gods need help there's a sort of an ad hoc solution um, that is generated and a demon or some other sort of problem source is 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 dealt with and then we we have a return to a a healthy state of things. So you, um, you're you at pains to show um, the, the parallel in the, in the structure of those two Mahatmyas. Are there, are there other, I'm totally unfamiliar with the Markandeya Purana. Are there other Mahatmyas in the Markandeya Purana? You know, that's, that's a great question. None come to mind 
And so um, certainly there are materials, um, I think it was maybe Pargeter who first, yeah, certainly Pargeter. Uh, or by Pargeter's time, or Banerjee, who first edited it, I think in the 1850s, you know, it was noted that there are these different strata of the text, right? There's a conversation between a couple of characters that goes on for some chapters, and then a different conversation that goes on, and and sort of, to the mind of Western scholarship, the the, the important questions have to do with, well, what was composed when? Um, sometimes those questions are asked to teach us about the world behind the text, but more often than not, those questions were asked to to insinuate which parts of the text are genuine and which mm-hmm. are interpolations. Um, and obviously, I mean, I wouldn't be daft enough to argue that the Markandi Purana was composed in one sitting. Um, clearly, it's the work of, 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 of generations, clearly. Having said that, it's also abundantly clear to me that by the time of the final... Um, editing, redaction, there was a, an extraordinary eye um, to the sophistication of, of this interplay between content and form, right? It, it really is a patchwork quilt where um, no matter which patches were added when, they were added with an eye to what came before so that the resulting entity is something that makes sense as a whole. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's all the more glaring that you don't really see another Mahatmya. You see the Devi Mahatmya, you see the Surya Mahatmya. The Surya Mahatmya hasn't even been called the Surya Mahatmya until this book. I decided to call it that because I don't know what else to call it because it's sort of been glossed over as sort of, you know, one of the more sectarian threads of this Markandeya Purana patchwork, but, but clearly it's a glaring Mahatmya in its own right. And the fact that you don't see this outside of these two Mahatmyas um, it's sort of uh, it's it, it makes it all the more mystifying to me that it hasn't been commented on as such. Um, there's there's a you know earlier when you were asking about you know why are these texts there why is this the Markandi Purana that's a good question. Um, it, in answering why the Surya Mahatmya is in the Markandi Purana, um, it sort of helps me answer why the Devi Mahatmya is there. For me, it's the same reason. It's the same series of reasons. I call it an, uh, an ideological ecosystem, for lack of a better word. There, there, the Devi Mahatmya can be thought of as, a, as a, a, a plant, a banyan tree. And then nearby, there's this other banyan complex, the Surya Mahatmya. But the soil from which they draw are united in the theme of preservation, of Prabhupada Dharma. And that's something that you do see sprinkled throughout the text. Um, you know, in, 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 in the discussion of the, of the lines of kings and the Manus, that's not going to be unique to the Markandi Purana. That's in pretty much every Purana. But um, in this text, you have this glorification of this goddess who is, who is essentially fulfilling the function of the Indian king, preservation. And you have this, also this glorification of similar kind of the sun who is also fulfilling the role of the Indian king, preservation, world affirmation. And the entire work is mouthed by Markandeya. Um, now, both of these Mahatmyas, in their initial episodes, we see uh, their prime deities, you know, goddess and son in, in the respective Mahatmyas, as playing a salvific role after Pralaya, before mm-hmm. the dawn of this creation. Isn't it interesting then that Markandeya is the only being we know of to survive Pralaya? 
that he actually there's something about his biography that's deeply implicated. Is it as is it always? Yeah, I've, I'm trying to. I know of other examples where uh, some sage, but I don't remember it. I guess maybe it is Mark and Dea, but you know, you have the story of um, surviving the flood and looking in uh, the baby's mouth. It's um, Mark and Dea. That's Mark part. and Dea as well. Okay, so he's always. I assume that I. I guess in my mind, I always think Narada, Vyasa. These other sages can do that. They can pull that trick, but maybe Markandeya is the one who, who is, um, who uh, is the only one who can claim to have survived the pralaya. Well, the, the the tradition tells us that he survives pralaya like in an embodied form. He's the only embodied being to survive the dissolution of the cosmos. Mm-hmm. Right. So it seems to me that there's something, you know, I call it sort of expositor import, where I look at the, I look at the person speaking. And even before I hear what they have to say, there will be a certain biography, certain understanding of what they represent. Mm-hmm. You can see this in all kinds of other narratives. You know, if someone were to invoke the name Hamlet, it would mean something. What he, what he, what is, what he actually says and does will be covered by what we know of his biography. Mm-hmm. You know, right? And so, you know, part of what I'm, I mean, I think I'm doing three essential things. I'm showing that there is a Surya Mahatmya. It exists. It's in this text. I'm showing that it's it's deeply parallel to the Devi Mahatmya in its structure and its argument, its emphasis on world affirmation, Parvati Dharma. Mm-hmm. And then I'm also saying that, you know, in, in I think probably the penultimate chapter, in the Mapping Markandeya chapter, that the reason this takes place is because there is this the reason why this works or why this, this might have been the case, this might have made sense to the ancient authors and, and redactors of this text is because there is this ideological ecosystem in the Markandeya Purana and outside of the Mahabharata, Markandeya Purana is one of the few places where we see overt discourse on poverty versus Nivriti religion. Right. Um, and now that there's a point in there that I want to, to come back to. Um, um, this issue of sectarian uh, sectarianism is, is, seems quite important, and you flagged that you know this fact that the Devi Mahatmya is sectarian in the sense that, of course, you know it doesn't mean that there's a, a hostility between Vaishnavas and Shaivas and whatnot, but the sense that the the, the the goddess in the Devi Mahatmya is a superior goddess who can do what the male gods can't do, right? And there's a sense of triumphalist sort of you know, posturing uh, in a sense, so that the Devi Mahatmya celebrates the goddess as the superior, the, the true source of power, and so on. Um, and yet it inhabits the Markandeya, as you say, in a way that makes sense, in a way that is thematically uh, cohesive. The Surya Mahatmya, as well, you argue, reflects a sectarian um, uh, origin of some kind, that is to say, the sun, you know, everyone knows the sun is there, everyone recognizes the power of the sun, but the Surya cult itself is identifiable as an actual, you know, religious movement um, and can also be called the sectarian movement as well. What, you know, bringing the conversation around specifically to the Surya Mahatmya section, does, does looking at the Markandeya Purana's Surya Mahatmya give us any insight into the actual sort of individual cult, the, the sectarian movement of Surya, Surya Bhakti or, or sun worship um, as a 
kind of self-contained religious movement in, in ancient India? That's a good question. Um, one of the texts that I had the good fortune of looking closely at um, while researching this book was the Samba Purana. Mm-hmm. Now, I was oblivious to the Samba Purana. This is interesting, just uh, uh, coincidentally, Samba is a son of Krishna, and uh, one of us has written a book on a son of Krishna, <laughs> <laughs> and it is not I. <laughs> so, um, the Samba Purana, there's all kinds of conjecture and, and, and even yeah, uh, iconographical and sort of um, inscription evidence about um, uh, sun priests, the Magas priests from Persia. Um, entering uh, India, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, some some believe that some worship came from these priests. Some believe that well, you know uh, th- that whatever was happening in India was cross pollinated thereby. You know, long story short, by the time of the Samba Purana, and it, I think Hazardate said it around fifth century CE, you have this overt Saura sectarian Purana. It is. A, it is a text that glorifies, mythologizes the sun, uh, talks about rituals to the sun, right, and practices to the sun. Um, the the Surya Mahatmya is comparable to the Devi Mahatmya in that you have these luscious narratives um, which establish and embellish the supremacy of these deities, but you don't have a uh, you don't have Shastra or treaties where, okay, now this is how you do the Upasana of the sun. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is on these titis, you should worship the goddess uh, on this kind of, you know, you don't have that dimension. You have snippets uh, at the end of the Devi Mahatmya, the, the, the merchant and the king. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it's sort of... Um, they're, they're not ritual men. Right, they're not ritual manuals, but you 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 have them kind of okay. Well, it says over the course of I think ten verses or less that at the end of it they they create a murti on the banks of a river. They offer incense and food, and they they offer the limbs of their own uh, the blood of their own limbs. Mm-hmm. Uh, they fast, they restrain their minds, and and the goddess appears. So you you do have a sense of this uh, of various strands of religiosity that you see snippets of in the Mahabharata as well, where someone will stand on one leg austerity or there'll be some element of what we may call puja uh, or, or some kind of nivritic um, fasting or you know you you there you do have these elements in the text but they're not foregrounded and they're not systematized and it doesn't seem to me that they are the primary theme or purpose of the text if that makes sense mm-hmm. um, you know if I had to fathom a guess I think I mentioned this in the book. Uh, it seems that uh, the, the the authors of the Suri Mahatmya probably took the content of the Samba Purana, or at least the, the you know drawing from the supremacy of the sun that we see in the Samba Purana, and modeled it a la the Devi Mahatmya, because the Devi Mahatmya is probably a very successful um, method whereby a goddess tradition was Trojan horse, so to speak, within the Brahmanic fold. We have this, you know, a thousand years later in Kerala, for example, we have the Badrakali Mahatmya, also Malta Markandeya. Um, you have uh, earlier in the podcast, I had um, uh, Udi Halperin, who had a, who did a study of the Himalayan goddess Adimba and mention of in modern times, well, she's actually, they present her as uh, the Adimba of the Mahabharata, right? Who's Bhima's wife. Although that's not, 
at all foregrounded in her regional mythology. And so um, it seems to me, assuming that the Devi Mahatmya is earlier than the Saura Mahatmya, seems to me that, that the, the, the ancient Saura authors would have saw an excellent model of establishing the supremacy of, um, uh, of, of, of a divinity within the Brahmanic fold. I mean, and as I say, it could be the other way around. I don't know, but what I do know is there's clearly this sort of this Saura Shakta symbiosis. Clearly, these texts are mirroring from and drawing from each other at the same time. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. One legitimizes the other, right? Right. And it's it's paradoxical because they're all, they're talking about different deities, but they they add credence to the project that they share in terms of establishing the supremacy of their respective deity. Mm-hmm. And um, and just to pursue this issue of the sun a little further, um, and the mythology that we get in that uh, Surya Mahatmya. There is you. You devote a quite a good chunk of time to um, the myth of Sabnya, and and to doing what you call debunking Doniger, um, for a good uh, I don't know maybe twenty uh, percent of the of your book or so is is you're really quite engaged with um, uh, with Doniger's work and with providing an alternate view of this myth of Sabnya which is obviously very, very important. Um, who, who is Samnya and, and why, why is, she, is she so important to understand? And, and what did Doniger, according to you, your view, get so wrong? Because I, 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 you know, I'm going to have a follow-up question because I feel that there are much larger, more general issues in the study of, of Indian religions that will come out of that. Uh, you know, I think you, you, you point to them in the book. Um, but that suffices to say that there's a larger significance, I think, in your engagement with Doniger than is simply than than, than simply this issue of who Samnya is. Maybe maybe you could tell the listeners a little bit about who who is this character and why is Doniger, according to you, misreading and misunderstanding uh, her and in, in, in the mythology she's associated with. Well, um, yeah, I think I'll start with the primary text because that's usually where I start. Um, I look at a, my methodology is to, to read um, narrative, Sanskrit narrative, even in translation, if not the original or, or oscillate back and forth, depending on the resolution needed for analysis. I read, I read uh, narrative the way I read a novel in English. Once I have a sense of the story, then I turn to secondary scholarship. That's not always the case in our field and understandably so because we're scholars, right? Mm-hmm. But I typically have a hard and fast rule to read a myth multiple times over a sustained period so that, I, so that it speaks to me on its own terms as best it can, as best I can understand it, you know, if we can, if we can afford that agency. Certainly, Echo would say that, uh, Umberto Echo would say that, that narrative's job is to elicit interpretation. Certainly, it'll be colored by our context, but nevertheless, the, the narrative will do its darndest to try it to I was interpreted a certain way. So I engage that process first. Then I take a look at secondary material and see where the voice of, you know, there's the voice of the primary text. There's my voice that I'm hoping is amplifying the voice of the primary text. And then there is the voice of others who have also commented upon the primary text. So just to give a sense of, of how I do what I do. 
So I read, so it's fascinating to me that, you know, the, the myth of Sandhya has fascinated me um, uh, even before my, my fascination with the Devi Mahatmya. Uh, but it's, it, you know, you have the sun, the, I could tell it in glorious detail, but we probably won't have um, <laughs> full time to do so. But long story short, um, and let me say that this myth has been around probably for close to three millennia. Uh, we have snippets of it in, in, in Vedic hymns. You know, you know, I asked the same of Brian Colling, Collins on his Parushurama study, like, is it the Parushurama myth you're studying or is it a composite you're making or are we looking at them in context? And the same can be said of what I say about Sandhya. But the difference is that I'm looking at what we see about this narrative within the context of the Markandeya Purana and why it makes sense to the redactors and authors of the Markandeya Purana rather than look at the narrative over a couple millennia and try to find an essential thrust to the narrative. I don't necessarily think that um, the latter of those enterprises is without merit. I think it's quite fruitful. But my, my inclination is to look at a text as a whole as we have it before we slice and dice and shred and let's see what the text is telling us about itself as is. That's my primary call to how I study these texts. But in the Markandeya Purana, you have Sandhya is the wife of the sun. Um, she's a dev- the daughter of the divine architect, shall we say, uh, the tinkerer. And uh, she gets married off and she ends up having uh, uh, three kids, two sons and a daughter. One of the children is, is Manu, uh, the Manu Vaivasvata. He's the current Manu, the Manu of this current epoch. Uh, there are 14 such epochs in an age of creation. And so the son of the son is the, the Lord of an age, of our age. Um, anyhow, she has these three children. And the son, you know, <laughs> like many relationships, they're sort of pleasant at first. And then, you know, you may see another side of the person later on. And so, <laughs> so the son becomes overbearing, right? And she can't take his overbearing nature. Right? And she's like, you know, I got to get out of here. This is crazy. So she crafts a doppelganger, chaya, shadow, mm-hmm. reflection. She casts her shadow, imbues, imbues it with life and says, look, I got to go. You take care of these children. You take care of the son and don't speak a word. Mm-hmm. Right. And so um, she goes off. Now, uh, the son, you know, eclipsed by shadow, so to speak. Um, was was uh, and he unwittingly he he, he fathers a a, a, a a parallel family a reflection family with this reflection of Samnya. Um, also fathers two uh, two boys and a girl. Now um, I believe it's Yama. Yama is the god of death. Yama and Manu were the sons of the sun by Sandhya. Now. Yama noticed that uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's Yama. If it's if if I'm if I'm, if I'm getting it wrong correctly, I, mean, I haven't looked at this myth closely in a while, believe it or not. But it's I think it's Yama who noticed that the shadow mother was favoring the younger stepchildren, mm-hmm. younger children, which were actually hers, unbeknownst to the son or even them. You know, the first three were her stepchildren, and so he basically. Um, calls her out on it, and uh, he threatens to kick her with his foot. 
And she curses him that, look, your foot's going to fall off. And then he goes crying to his father. The son says, look, you know, you know, whether out of childishness or anger, I, you know, I threatened to kick mom with my foot and she's cursed me. And now, and of course, if you come from an Indian context, you realize how egregious this is. It's unthinkable, right? It's it's unthinkable to touch a book with your foot, you know, with disrespect. To show a, a guru, for example, the soles of your feet, and to kick your mother with your feet, this is like, you know, it's jarring. And she's like, well, and the son's like, well, your mother's curse has to come to pass, but I'll mitigate it. And he mitigate, he mitigates it so that he doesn't lose his foot, but I think some bugs crawl on his foot and then fall to the ground instead of his actual foot. But then he realizes that, you know, no matter, you know, a proper mother, no matter how ridiculous the child is, the Lord knows we've all either been or had experiences with children completely out of line, right? Um, a proper mother is not, they, they will be ideally in this archetypal world, they, they will forgive whatever ridiculousness their kid's up to. So he's like, this can't be my wife. There's no way she would threaten to like, there's no way she'd curse her own son. What's up with this? So he calls her out. So the sun now shines his light upon the shadow. <laughs> and the shadow is like, uh, you know, what are you talking about? I'm your wife, Sanja. And he gets really irate and angry and overbearing and says, basically, you better, <laughs> you better let me know what's going on right now. Otherwise, I'm going to drag you by your hair. Um, and she's like, well, you know, she confesses, you know, I'm basically your, your wife's shadow. Uh, she's off. So then uh, Surya and the son goes off to her father-in-law and says, you know, where's, where's my wife? Where's your daughter? Uh, earlier in the myth, we hear that, that Sandhya did actually go visit the father-in-law, but the father-in-law said, you're welcome to come back here anytime, but it's not appropriate for you to stay with your, your home family for this long while you're married. Please go off to your husband again. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so the, so, so the father-in-law says, look, um, yes, she visited it, but I, I sent her packing a long time ago. Like, uh, you know, well, I don't know where she is. So the son focuses his mind through some sort of yana or yogic concentration. And he perceives that his wife, um, his wife, Sandhya, actually is, had changed herself into the form of a mare. And she was practicing austerities in the northern Kurus. Mm-hmm. And the, the, her, her itcha, her desire, her sankalpa, her intention was that, uh, her prayer was that, may my husband resume his benign form. And so uh, he perceived her noble prayer and he probably realized, you know what, maybe, she, maybe there is some, something to this toxic masculinity. Maybe yeah, I have been a little overbearing. Enough's enough. Time's up. So... Uh, so, dear father-in-law, since you're the divine architect and you've got all these weapons, how about you hammer me down? <laughs> he asks of his father-in-law, be hammered down. Mm-hmm. Astonishing. Astonishing. He's hammered down to one-sixteenth of his, of, of his glory, of his stages. Fifteen-sixteenths of his, his splendor, of his effulgence is hammered away and used for divine weapons and whatnot. And and, and now sufficiently hammered down, he assumes the form of a mare, a sort of a, of a stallion. He goes and visits his wife. You know, she was afraid that this might be some other stallion. So she turns to guard her rear. They, they encounter each other face to face. And then his tagus, his, his retus, his, his either semen or the flow of his tagus, however you want to think of it, 
either literal or spiritual seminal essence um, flows from his nostrils to hers. And they have three more children. Among these are the Ashwin twins, the divine healers, and Revanta. Mm-hmm. And so fascinating. Uh, myths are such that you know that they're saying something important, but you can't quite know what the hell they're saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that they're, they're speaking sociologically, they're speaking archetypally, they're speaking uh, um, uh, socioculturally, like historically. They're, they're, they're doing so much and they're so unassuming because to the untrained eye, they're, they're fancy. But they're, they're, they're such gripping fancy. I mean, if Lord of the Rings can move us, right? If Star Wars can move us, certainly ancient Indian um, uh, mythological narrative can, can I have move to us. confess that I find Indian myths far more moving than the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> but now coming back to that, so... So, 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 this, this, so uh, he, he volunteers to be pared down. He, he approaches her. They have these three children. She's delighted at his lovely form, quite literally. And she goes home. And essentially, they live happily ever after. In the last uh, paragraph or so of, I think this must be, uh, this is right before the Devi Mahatmya, immediately before the Devi Mahatmya, we hear this myth. Important, right? It frames the Devi Mahatmya. This is it's my obsession with frames. It's meaningful. They're, they're, they're telling stories about the position of these stories. But anyhow, uh, tell, basically, they live happily ever after. And, and then it just tells us that, you know, there's, um, there's sort of uh, cosmic posts allotted to all of these uh, these children of, of Surya and Samnya and Chaya. And so, powerful myth. Mm-hmm. Let me say. And it's one uh, that, that, that Doniger has written a fair bit about. She's, she's, been... she's written a fair bit about. And I really understand why she's obsessed with this myth. It's powerful. It's captivating. Obsessed may be a, a strong word, why she's captivated by it. Now, I have to say, you know, I think Wendy Doniger is brilliant and certainly one of the most prolific voices of Indian myth in, uh, at the Western Academy for quite some decades now. And so some of why I critique Doniger is because she's one of the, the, she's one of the few and certainly the most vocal voice of interpretation on this myth. And so, you know, had there been five or six or 10 other scholars, it wouldn't have appeared so much as a sort of, you know, let me critique Doniger's reading. But Doniger's reading is really currently uh, the reading. No one else has really worked on this myth. And this myth is very important. Um, you know, there's, there's a great article by Goldman talks about the myth in the Vedic context. So I, I, she essentially has a read of, you know, that Sandhya is essentially dragged back home uh, at the end of the day. I don't really see that in the text. It's clear to me that the text has a lot of sympathy for Sandhya's plight. And the text is equally critical of Surya's overbearing nature to the point that he realizes it. I mean, think of the midday sun. Who can stand the midday sun? Mm-hmm. And he gets pared down. And I think that's part of the pun as well. Sandhya also means dawn mm-hmm. uh, or, or sort of the place between darkness and light. And, the myth may also be this idea, well, in the morning, the sun's bearable. In the midday, he is not. In the evening, he's bearable again, right? Maybe. I don't know. But certainly, mm-hmm. certainly, I see this really powerful thread of the tenacity of this feminine figure in tempering this toxic masculine thread. 
Mm-hmm. Not that the son himself is toxic, he's, he's sattvic, but he's also strict. He's also you know, sort of an ugra, he's an intense nature. And so I found it astonishingly um, forward-thinking in terms of gender norms. And so that, for me, for me, it was all the more jarring to sort of see this myth read as as, uh, basically a support for ancient Indian patriarchal biases, uh, of which there's no shortage, I assure you. Um, But so that's sort of, that's sort of, the diversions, the diversions on how we both read the myth, um, I think in part has to do with our methodologies. And that I'm looking at the myth in particular in the Markandeya Purana context and why on earth the tradition would choose to use this, this, this narrative as the runway for this vision of the divine feminine we see in the Devi Mahatmya. That makes more sense to me. Um, I don't know if I've answered your question. Maybe I've said... I've, these are very, you know, these are fascinating issues. And uh, um, I think probably most of the questions I have are, I realize, are going to open up conversations that we, we, we don't have time for because they're, they, they're so impossible to restrict to short, um, you know, five minute, uh, well, there, we have five minutes of discussion about Hindu mythology. Now we sorted everything out and we can go home for the day. It's, it's, very, very difficult to, uh, to try to encapsulate these things. Sure. Uh, and um, so, um, the, the, you know, having said that, um, there's another point that I want to, to raise just to, to bat around uh, that's, that will help us kind of step back again. We've, we've sort of gotten into the, the deep mechanics of, of some of the finer issues of the book, but maybe I'll kind of start to retreat out again to a more general issue with epics and Puranas and, and they sort of ask you how you feel about it and, and how the writing of this book um, affected your way of thinking about this kind of thing. So we've been talking about, you know, holism and structural integrity and, and the cohesiveness of the Markandeya Purana. And um, certainly, as you say, there was an older generation that was very you know, flippant and very kind of uh, dismissive about and, and totally unconcerned with recognizing structuring motifs or cohesiveness or thematic kind of continuity. And they would simply say, this is the original, this is a later interpolation. But, but I, I can't, but I have to observe, and I'll ask you how you feel about this. I have to observe that the Hindu tradition, as you say, is perfectly happy to say, take the Devi Mahatmya out, right? To isolate it out and just recite it and, and print it and, and uh, have it be part of, you know, Navratri and, and so on. And other texts like, let's say the Bhagavad Gita, it's part of the Mahabharata, but the Hindu tradition is quite comfortable to just, you know, let's just write a commentary on the Gita, not the whole Mahabharata. The, the Gita is important as an isolated text to Vedantic scholars. And it's published and printed on its own today outside. Everyone knows it's from the Mahabharata, but there's, a, there's quite a comfort and an ease, right, with which these texts can have portions removed from them. And so, you know, um, I guess my question is, for whom are we making these arguments about the structural cohesiveness of texts when, if on the one hand, Hindus, Hindu tradition is comfortable with, with um, you know, removing a section and just sort of treating it in isolation. And then we also recognize that these have taken shape over some time and that there is a diachronic sort of 
you know, evolution. Yet, if, to whom are we making the arguments about the cohesiveness, the, the indivisibility, the structural sort of um, integrity of these texts? Um, that's a really general, broad, and, and um, uh, sorry, it came out sounding rather provocative, but um, I really mean that as a kind of a conversation starter. Does your work on the Puranas give you a, uh, the, the recent work that you've done, does it give you a sharper sense of, um, uh, of how we conduct our research as scholars vis-a-vis -a, -vis a religious tradition? Yeah, so, so there's a shelf in my, in my, in my study, and on the shelf, I have uh, your book on Pajumna, and I believe next to it might be um, Simon Broadbeck's translation, mm -hmm. Harivamsha. Mm -hmm. And then uh, on the same book, I may have um, Brian Collins' study of Parashurama. And then next to that, I may have um, uh, uh, Uli Halperin's study of the Himalayan goddess Hedimba. Now, certainly, I would have to be daft to read them all as one book. So that being said, who am I to say they don't all belong on the same shelf? Mm -hmm. So for us looking at the shelf now, well, someone may come and say, oh, I see this shelf was all about um, Sanskrit narrative. Mm -hmm. what's, this, what's this ethnographic goddess study at the end? Oh, maybe it's related somehow because of the Mahabharata. No, 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 no. Those, those you know, forget the Parashurama book. Forget the Hedimba book. This shelf is about um, Krishna. This is a Krishnite shelf. Mm -hmm. Somebody shelved those other books there because they don't know better. Now, unless and until we realize these books were all part of the New Books in Hindu Studies podcast. Mm -hmm. We can't understand they all belong on the shelf for a reason. Right. And so what I'm saying is, so, so to your point, uh, the Bhagavad Gita certainly is meant to be read alone. Um, and it can also be appreciated in context. But nobody within the tradition denies that it belongs as part of Mahabharata, mm -hmm. thinks of it as an intrusion, an interpolation. Right. And so it's this, it's this attitude of interpolation, of intrusion, of disruption. It is, it is this, it's, it's entrenched in sort of um, the colonial quest for the Ur Puranas, the actual Puranas. Mm -hmm. You know, this, this, this portal, this mythic portal that'll take us back to our own Aryan past, right? Unlike the Vedas, the Puranas are all over the map and they were corrupted by Brahmanism. You know, some 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 may even look at the Mahabharata through this lens. You know, there are the Chatriya portions of the Mahabharata, and then there's all this Brahmanical stuff. You know, who knows if it actually quote unquote belongs there? So, what I'm saying is that, from a scholarly point of view, um, we really have, you know, it's it's a really difficult position to defend, given all the scholarship of the last couple decades that a certain piece of a Purana does not belong in that Purana. Whereas prior to maybe this current epoch of scholarship, that was precisely the, 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 the argument. The Devi Mahatma is an interpolation. It's not proper to the Markandeya Purana. It's a late sectarian interpolation. 
Whereas all I'm saying is there's a reason why these books, these, these pieces were placed on these shelves. They belong there. Let's assume that they belong there. Let's assume that they were meaningfully housed there. And then let's try to understand, you know, the, 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 the sort of uh, mythic Dewey Decimal System. I don't know if I'm making any sense, but there's a distinction. That I'm no, that's a great image. I really like that image that, you know, you would have to know that, that this is the shelf of the guy who did all these interviews. And, you know, suddenly the light bulb comes on. You're like, oh, okay, that now I understand why they are set side by side. That's a, that's a very helpful image. I guess I, I don't know if I was very articulate, but um, sure, I, sure. I, feel, I, I feel a kind of a tension between, you know, um, there's a tension between the, the, the freedom with which, the ease with which the Hindu tradition can just say, well, I, I'm just going to read the Devi Mahatmya. I don't really care about the Markandeya Purana. We're just going to recite the Devi Mahatmya. Everyone knows that it has a place. It's not, as you say, it's, it's, it's by no means a judgment about like, this is the original, this is a false or a late interpolation, and therefore I'm not interested. But, but the ease with which the tradition can do that I feel stands in tension sometimes with the, um, with some, you know, and I've done it and you're doing it and lots of people are doing it. And, and we feel this impulse to, to make arguments about the holistic integrity and the cohesiveness of texts. And sometimes I wonder who we're talking to, you know what I mean? Like who, who for whom are we making these arguments? The ones who, the people who really needed those arguments have been dead for a long time. Right? As but Indeed, those individuals have have passed out of existence, but the 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 legacy of prejudice is only now passing out of existence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it's just the correct, um, an unconscious internalized legacy right. stemming probably from Wilson's translation, the Vishnu Purana. I think that was what eighteen forties or something. Um, Mid nineteenth, I think something like that. Sure, but but this it's this work is to correct the scholarly tendencies and assumptions of what's late, what's interpolated. So that we can look at, whether we want to look at the text piecemeal or look at them as a whole, um, let's honor that they belong where, where we find them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and make I, an initial, uh, you know, good thing. Yeah, and, and, and someone could certainly, and I, I firmly believe that, you know, the Mahabharata, the Puranas, that the narratives are meant as teaching tales uh, you know, there's tons of didactic stuff like you know, Shastra, treaties, but the narrative is meant as teaching tales for various situations in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I firmly believe that, and I've seen this done a hundred times, a preceptor will tell a story, a specific story to a specific person. Exactly what Markandeya does in the Mahabharata, telling the story of Rama to, 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 to Yudhishthira. Mm-hmm. exactly what he does the text is telling you how the text should be used a story is told for um for the imparting of wisdom or the alleviating of suffering or the granting of perspective and i firmly believe that that is the utility of the text having said that one can gain much within the tradition by understanding the context of krishna the context of Prajna. Mm-hmm. This is not a highfalutin philosophy, of course it is, but it's in the middle of the most practical, gory enterprise imaginable, an apocalyptic war, right? Mm-hmm. And that's to be remembered. And so 
we look at the Suri Mahatma, sure, and look at the narratives there and sure and, and celebrate the glory of Surya and what we feel is a is 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 um is the theme of the text. But if we don't we do ourselves a disservice if we refrain from regarding it in context. Or we don't necessarily need to regard what's around the text we're looking at. But if we prejudicially think that's not important, mm-hmm. you miss much, I feel. Um, I don't know if that distinction makes sense to you. Sure, of course. Yeah, so it's like, so, I mean, there's and there's a lot there that you can draw from. So I think, who am I arguing for? I think I'm trying to help correct uh, um, a legacy of scholarship that's been really, really problematic, especially on the Puranas. Mm-hmm. Right? I think that is one of the objectives. Um, it, that that objective is just in how I read the text, right? The methodology. Mm-hmm. But what I find in there, I think that's the real juice and my love of the narratives. Like what is the text trying to say to us? Or maybe trying to say to who knows if it's us now, if it's if it's some us from the past. Mm-hmm. Um, but this you mean like whether or not the, the Suri Mahatmi is proper to the Markandeya Purana, that's an argument, I think, for scholarship. But what's interesting is, look, there's this text that glorifies the sun in much the way that this other text glorifies the goddess. The sun saves the day at the time of creation in the first act. The sun saves the heavens from the demons in the second act. And then, Chris, there's this amazing third act where um, the king uh, Raja Vardhana, he's this... A prosperous sort of um, idyllic uh, noble king and and he rules for 7,000 years you know people f- for some reason lived even longer than they did in the Hebrew Bible but anyways <laughs> he ruled for 7,000 years <laughs> and and then um, uh, one day his, his wife Manini spots a gray hair on his head and you know there's this idea that once you start graying, mm-hmm. uh, you need to renounce. And fortunately, that's not the case. Otherwise, I would be in big trouble because I'm just getting started. <laughs> they, don't, they don't go for the silver fox. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow. Gentleman uh, aesthetic. Anyhow, uh, she, she laments. She, you find a gray hair. You need to go to the forest now and become a forest hermit. And he stoically says, look, like, what's the big deal? We've lived a great life. We've studied the Vedas. We've ruled prosperously. We have an heir. All the citizens are lamenting. You can't go. What's the problem? So they all go and they worship the sun intensely. And the sun is pleased by their penance and appears. And this is, you know, you know, you know, we um, we want our king to to rule for another ten thousand years, right? And so they come back and they tell him. Now he's sad. And they're like, why are you sad? He's like, well, <laughs> listen, I mean, I'll leave you all. I mean, end up alone. Right? And so then he goes and he worships the sun intensely. And the sun is pleased by his penance and grants him a boon. He's like, you know, uh, please just allow everybody in my citizenship to live as long as, as, as I'm allowed to live. And they all live happily ever after. Open bracket for 10,000 years, close bracket. Mm-hmm. The text pays no attention to the fact that they'll be in the same bloody mess in 10,000 years <laughs> that they were now. This is not a text that, 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 that tilts towards the nivritic strand of the Dharmic double helix. It's not reminding us that everything is, 
you know, everything is fleeting and, and, and let go of your attachment. Everything uh, will decay. It's, it's saying, okay, great. We get 10,000 more years. Wonderful. And that's the end of the text. Mm-hmm. And it's so. Right. Yeah, yes. So, so this is a powerful teaching tale. It has this, this glorious theme and it need not be looked at in a, uh, it, 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 it's, it's self-sufficient, but how much richer is it when we, when we say, well, this is actually part of this tripartite tale of the glories of the sun. Mm-hmm. And what if you brought the story of Mark and Dea in there as well? And you told that next about how Mark and Dea was preserved across Pralaya, mm-hmm. right? The, 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 the tales, um, there's a synergy there. There's this uh, ideological ecosystem, as I talk about, this mm-hmm. sort of um, symbiosis between two tales or two Mahayans. And so the move of bringing in the context uh, to enrich this self-standing tale can't be done if we have the lens of interpolation or, 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 or like this, the, this text, this tale is from God knows where it composed, God knows when, and was just um, thrown in here, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, stapled to the rest of the Mark and Dave <laughs> Right. So that's sort of, I think, the use of someone within tradition to understand the greater context. Um, yeah, but it's a good question you raise. And I hope I've answered it. Oh yes, absolutely. yeah, definitely. Um, um, I, I I should probably move to the, the 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 last traditional question so as to move us towards a, a conclusion, sure. um, which is, of course is you know this project is, is wrapped up now and uh, it's out in print from Rutledge. Um, has it given rise to new uh, projects that you're you're pursuing? Um, as a consequence, and what what are some of your future plans? Yeah, so uh, the goddess and the king was looking at the frame of the Devi Mahatmya, which sort of brought me into the, the larger soil of the Markandeya Purana and the Surya Mahatmya. You know, the, those last pieces have congealed in this book. But then I, I started looking at the frame of the Markandeya Purana. And the Markandeya Purana... <laughs> begins by Jaimini, this pupil of Yasa himself. Jaimini comes to the great Markandeya and says, look, I've studied the Mahabharata and I have these four niggling questions. Can you please answer these four questions for me? I really don't know the answer to these questions. This is the beginning of the Markandeya Purana. So of course, now there's this, there's, now I have to look, okay, why? What are these questions? How is the Markandeya Purana related to the Mahabharata? Turns out that the four, Markandeya is busy, but Markandeya defers Jaimini to these four birds. The four birds who narrate, you know, who mouth Markandeya's words, the four birds who narrate the Markandeya Purana, they're actually descendants of the birds who survived the Khandava massacre. Mm-hmm. In the framing of the Adiparvan. In the book of beginnings that frames the, the, this, this grand epic, right? Um, in the terminal frame, you have this, the, 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 the destruction of the Kandava. There's, I think, six survivors thereof, uh, including these four birds. <laughs> these four birds are the ancestors of the birds, <laughs> the literal ancestors of the birds, who narrate the Markandeya Purana. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, 
you know, I thought I was asking a simple framing question, but apparently it, you know, it's taken me to the, the final framing frontier, the Mabart itself, you know, what's, what's not there is nowhere. Right. And, and so that, that line of thought um, ended up becoming a journal article with uh, IGHS, the International Journal of Hindu Studies. It should be out in a month or two. But I'm sort of itching. <laughs> I'm really itching to take a closer look at the framing structures at play in the Mahabharata. Um, that project's still in its infancy, mm-hmm. um, but I, I don't think I'll be satisfied until I, I you know, say something, however um, insignificant. You know, you know, there's a, there's an ocean of voices. Uh, it's a choir of voices on the Mahabharata. But the next book, book three, I'm currently working on a book proposal to sort of to refine my ideas about the mechanics of framing and intertextuality uh, with respect to the Mahabharata. So that's what I'm sort of working on now. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic. There's some, definitely some very stimulating uh, pieces out there on that, uh, on that issue. Um, so I'll be interested to hear how you respond to them. Um, well, I think I should, uh, perhaps I'll do the job of, uh, of thanking you. I can't thank you on behalf of the podcast. I, I think only you can do that. Um, but um, it's been fun uh, chatting with you today. And I'm looking forward to uh, hearing more of, of the uh, Hindu Studies podcasts in the future. And especially, I should say, in the current situation when uh, many of us are going to be doing more online teaching and, and depending increasingly on uh, online materials and different kinds of media, I'm looking forward to using some of these podcasts uh, with my students in the coming semester. So just uh, another word of appreciation for, for what you do with the New Books Network. Um, and uh, looking forward to to hearing more. Thank you very much. It's certainly uh, it's certainly the age of podcasts is upon mm-hmm. us. Um, you know, I've done podcasts in the past with a different brand that I had developed. I don't do them anymore. This one I'm sort of filling in as a service role for New Books Network. So I'm not too involved in the back end of things. But out of curiosity, I asked. Um, I asked Marshall uh, Poe, the editor in chief, about numbers for the podcast. And astonishingly, they've uh, tripled, quadrupled in the last three months. Uh, uh, COVID nineteen, right? Mm-hmm. We're home. The, in 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 truth, uh, well, it's it's Friday afternoon after grueling week. So um, I will disclose that this is my uh, <laughs> these podcasts are uh, part of my contribution to the war effort. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, sometimes I I, I lament that I um. You know, I can add value to the lives of, you know, family and friends and clients and colleagues. But, you know, there's lots of people who are doing so much more meaningful work for handling the pandemic. And a, a tiny fraction of that can maybe be done by generating and engaging uh, content such as this. So I'm really glad you find it useful. And I think I think your words um, will prove to be prophetic. I think um, not necessarily this podcast per se, but podcasts in general, um, including this one, hopefully will be. Uh, a huge part um, of education moving forward uh, in the online world. Um, so I'm glad you you enjoy it. So for those of you listening, um, uh, we have been speaking with. I have been I have been interviewed by <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Christopher uh, R. Austin of Dalhousie University. Um, 
uh, I hope an interview on my new book, <laughs> The Goddess and the Sun in Indian Myth, uh, Power Preservation and Mirrored Mahatmyas in the Markandeya Purana. It is a 2020 um, Rutledge publication. I'm very grateful to Chris for doing this lip interview, and I'm very grateful for, for the community of listeners um, who really make this such a meaningful enterprise for me. Until next time, um, keep reading, keep listening, stay safe, and um, try and contemplate the glories of the goddess and the sun. Take care.